Hello, and welcome to the Market Bull Podcast. Please note, topics and stocks discussed in this podcast are not financial or investment advice. Today on the show, I spoke with Ron Manners, who was the founder and former chairman at Croesus Mining, which at one point was Australia's third largest gold producer. Now Ron is the current executive chairman of ManWest Group and the founder and chair of Mancal Economic Education Foundation, an Australian free market think tank. Ron's contribution to mining in Australia earned him an induction into the Australian Mining Hall of Fame in 2011 and was made an Officer of the Order of Australia in 2020. Ron talked about his approach to business and his thought process in order to solve problems as they emerged. Ron talked about his failures and what he learned from them at such an early age and throughout his career. The conversation then focused on Ron's recent experiences in Europe, where he presented three speeches about energy, economic reform and entrepreneurship. I hope you enjoy listening. So hello and welcome to the Markable Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Kostrich, and joining me for the conversation today is Ron Manners. Welcome to the show, Ron. Pleasure to be here, Ben. I was going to say, for, for those, I, I would assume most people would know you, you're, you're a global man, we're just saying you've gone back from Europe and then you went to Canberra and I've been trying to pencil in a face-to-face conversation with you, but you've got an incredible rich history in, in WA, in business, in mining. Um, I mean, I don't even know really where to start with introducing you. I, I know you've got, um, you're induced into the Mining Hall of Fame, you've done so much over your career and now you're really involved in, in education and free think tank and we're speaking in the ManCal offices today. But w- where do we even begin with you? I mean, if you're flashing back to early days, you was a kid uh, back, in, back in Kalgoorlie, uh, talk to us about your story and, and how you've emerged. Ben, it's an interesting one. You, we don't think too much about how anything starts. We just think about it in the in the present time, but I, if I think back, I can almost say that everything good that's ever happened to me has been an accident. <laughs> I think you, you uh, opportunities come along, and I think if you tune your mind to recognise these things as not as obstacles and not as misfortunes, but as op- they're opportunities, and if you can seize them and sh- grab them by the throat and shake them. <laughs> And then turn them around to your advantage and uh, lever off that and you, you, you're so well able to cope with the next misadventure of it. I, mm. I even, even wrote a book about all my complete failures in life. We were talking about that before because that's what... I called it heroic misadventures. They were absolutely disastrous. How one person can fail so often... I turned it into a book. I'll tell you, I made a lot of money. A successful, was, a successful well, failure it was book. A complete sellout. Yeah. Silly. I mean, I hear about people writing about their successes. Mm. But if you write about your failures, and it becomes a success that you sell so many books. So I, I think that's really been a, a, a sort of a repetitive thing, and that you, you, you find yourself in hot water or. In a, with a real problem, insurmountable. Sometimes I've not known where to turn, and you just think about it for a while, and then you realise that you're the only person that knows you're in trouble. Yeah. And you sit still for a while, and you say, "Well, 
I think one person's going to get me out of it. The same guy that got me into it. <laughs> but I mean, this this whole story, you, everything that you've done, you've really taken taken the risk. And uh, I mean, going back when I was reading your book, talking about you, you know, even your first job when you were ten years old doing you know newspaper, and you've probably heard that a lot of times. And the one that I cracked up about, we were laughing before, was that the toilet paper uh, device that that you created, and, and you mentioned that in your your recent speech that you were in Estonia, um, and even your. Um, the, the crystals, the, yeah. the crystals company. Yeah. I, I mean, how and, and why did at the time, it's clearly a personality trait of just taking that risk and, and running with it and you've adopted it throughout the time. But, but how, do you, how do you go about doing that? Well, I guess uh, you, you've probably got to be as old as me to remember that we didn't, we were talking about toilet paper, but that's, that was a situation that I was confronted with. We, back in my days, we had these little... We called them dunnies out in the backyard somewhere, and there was no such thing as those very uh, comfortable uh, rolls of toilet paper. It was just magazines or catalogues or whatever, or leaves or whatever was available. And then along came the toilet paper. Then they, everyone very proudly hung a little toilet roll holder. And I just, uh, every time I went to a, what they used to call dunnies, you, you find you the the guy that you you got the last piece, you know. And I thought, well, that's no good. So let's let's organise something that has two roles. So at least there's a follow-on thing, and uh, you minimise the inconvenience. So I, I made one of these things uh, in my uncle's engineering shop, and it made a few bits of uh, well, the quarter-inch round material and welded them with a little hole, and, so, and then uh, a few mates saw them and said, oh. I want one. Father's Day's coming up. I'll buy one for my dad or for the mother or whatever. Well, it was going on. And I had this, product, this little production line. I was about 15 or 16. And, and I get so busy with it. Mm. <laughs> so, then I put an advertisement in a weekly magazine of called Pix or something like that. And they, then I was selling them all over Australia. And, and it was just. And then I, I, I sort of felt that I had to miss a day. Occasionally, of school to catch up with the yeah. Well, I mean, the, the idea of, of having a, 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 a garage-made contraption that holds two rolls of toilet paper would have been revolutionary. And I mean, even even to think of, of that, and then transitioning to, to what you've done in in the mining space in particular. Yeah. I mean, how did you transition and, and get yourself into into mining? And well, I guess from the uh, toilet paper, I think I came across when I uh, for some reason. It, running a mining business and mining equipment and engineering business with my dad, calculably where we were based was was pretty stagnant. It was before the nickel boom, the gold industry had vanished. There was nothing much happening. So we, and my dad and I, decided we'd get a little farm in Esperance and run a few sheep or cattle down there uh, for a couple of days a week. And we commuted up and down and we had a little branch in uh, the business in Norseman and uh, that was just because there wasn't enough to occupy us fully with the business in Kogli. And I found that you want to buy a farm in Esperance, the only way you could buy a farm was to buy some really rotten, salty land because everyone had got in first. Mm. Got on the decent Taking land. the good stuff. So I ended up with a, a horrific uh, piece of land that was salt pans everywhere. And, and I th thought, well, this is a pity. There's... Um, out of Calgary, there was a shortage of water in Esperance. There was too much water, and they created all the salt. In fact, it's so, 
just started reading around, I found in Turkey they developed a species of salt-tolerant plant called Paxanelia. So I imported, it took, took about six months to import it and get all the permission to bring it in from Turkey and I planted it down there. And this, this virtually ate the salt. So you could plant it around the little salt pans and then you, uh, after another season you find that the, the salt pan was smaller and, and it created was a stubble like this so the stock could walk the stubble in and create a mulch on which other things like wimmera, ryegrass and all the other species would then take and you find suddenly there was no sign of a salt pan. You rehabilitated the land and uh, it, this was as if by magic but I only did it because I had a rotten bit of land. Mm. Well, as you said, <laughs> you, you've sort of converted it into a, to an opportunity. Uh, uh, then going from there, what, what was next? I think then, then I got some sort of award from, for, for, for being a rehabilitation land expert and that led me to get selected for the Duke of Edinburgh Study Conference in 1968 which then opened up a whole new series of uh, opportunities. I ended up going to England on a, the following year and again to uh, Canada and uh, one thing led to another. Then I think back in the mining thing we saw there was a phase where, where uh, nickel got off to a really good start Looking back, you can realise why it was a good start because the nickel industry in Australia was got launched in the middle of a nickel labour strike in Canada, which was providing most of the world's nickel. Suddenly there was a labour strike which cut the nickel production in the world by half. And at that stage, Western Mining had just made a discovery and they decided to get into business quickly. They got into business, they got contracts, the high price didn't last forever, and then suddenly it, everyone was having trouble making profit out of nickel mining. Yeah. The price had come down, the costs were going up. I took three months off and went around the world. I went particularly to, to Sweden. I went from the north of Sweden in Lapland right down to the south. I went underground on every mine in Sweden to find out how they were managing to mine what we regarded as sub-grade iron ore, copper, and other materials, how did they do it? And it was because they pioneered these low-profile diesel-operated equipment to use underground on the mines. And we in Kalgoorlie were still using air-operated little handheld boggers. And uh, I said, well, that's okay. So we then imported, ended up importing millions of dollars worth yeah. of these, what they called Kirana trucks. They were low-profile because they organised them to have two big Volvo engines side by side to get the size down. Instead of having one big engine, you had two side mm. by side so they could get them down in small tunnels. And uh, then we, we had to overcome the problem of uh, the exhaust diesel. You couldn't use the diesel engines yeah. underground because the chemicals and the, yeah, the, the breathing, yeah. So that was just at the time, 1974, when they were bringing in the catalytic converters and we had, these were all fitted up with uh, cylinders full of millions of little platinum prills to, to purify the air and the air was pristine you could breathe the air coming out of these diesel engines and that that was this was this was just a trend we we pioneered bringing those back then we brought in uh, uh, three boom uh, drilling jumbos to replace the handheld rock drills that the miners used to use and it was just a continuing process 
And, 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 and by the time that the nickel industry came back again, it was a very, very efficient industry, which it is today. And, the, uh, and uh, I think that, uh, that the gold industry took up, it virtually vanished, but it, it came back uh, today. I think uh, it was almost the anniversary of Nixon breaking the gold link mm. between the US dollar and the link, and that was $35 US up until that time. And then since then, it's been able to... Uh, it, it, the gold in the free market has found its own level. Now yeah. it's, it's $2,000 in the, in the US terms or $3,000 in Australian terms. Fantastic for the industries up and running. So it was just so... There's it, nothing smart, nothing uh, brilliant about that. There was just... There I was as these industries emerged... But you felt that you had to be to be part of it. You had to contribute to it. Yeah. Well, I would I wouldn't say it was this sort of fortune. I mean, it was, it was thinking outside necessarily the box and, and taking, as you said, like a risk, which which goes into the entrepreneurship side of yeah. things, and and just thinking how can things be improved and how can you change traditional ways of doing things. You know, looking at the the, the plant for the salt, and then you know, revolutionising the mining, and then I mean, you've really gone through all of this. You. you as we said, gone all over the world, seen what everyone's doing, and now you've found a, a real passion for education. But I know it's not just been something that's emerged recently and, and mentoring and tutoring and, and helping people understand and, and encourage free thinking. But where did your passion for, for that come about and, and even starting ManCow? Uh, well, that was pretty easy uh, in a sense because uh, I think I didn't... I collect stuff, you know. I've got all this... I'm sort of historian at heart, probably came out of my grandfather and my father, they collected all this stuff and I'm now finding it useful. But the, the early, one day in about 1987, I think I, I was based in Calgary, had a shed full of all this stuff and I got a call from a young fellow at UWA called Bill Stacey. He, he didn't, I didn't know who he was, he didn't know, he'd heard of me. He said, I believe you got a shed full of uh, material on the history of the Australian libertarian or free market movement where there's a, you, Dr B have kept a lot of stuff on the people that were involved over the years. And I said, yeah, sure, it's out the shed, covered with the dust, all the cupboards and stuff. He said he liked to come up from Perth. He's doing a, a master's degree on the, on the libertarian enlightenment of Australia. And can he access this? I said, feel free. Come and stay with us. Yeah, come up and have so a come across he, and see he me. Dug yeah. his way through all the uh, stuff in the shed, and he ended up producing an amazing document as a thesis, and we use that document today as an introductory text for the Mancal scholars. which say uh, you read that, and that'll put you completely in the picture, bring you from where it was to, to where it is today. And uh, Bill Bill is now a director of uh, Mancal and Ben West. Uh, company and a very good friend of mine so it's amazing so that that sort of made me think uh, how how did uh, and do people keep saying how did you get interested in all this well I said well so you sort of pick up something I opened it on 16 I opened up some boxes of mining equipment and there was some they didn't have bubble wrap in those days they had packing material which is old magazines and I took the magazines home, smoothed them out, and I read them, and they were called the Freeman Magazine from the Foundation 
mm. for economic education mm. in uh, New York. And uh, I liked what it was a bit, couple of years later. At the, I was at the School of Mines, and I think they said to me, oh, man, you're not much good at sport or anything else. You might as well be the editor of the School of Mines magazine. And I said, well, that's okay. Why not? <laughs> and so I said, well, what will I write about? So you write about what you're reading about. So I went back to these smoothed-out magazines. And <clears throat> yes, Australianised them a little bit out of the context and uh, published them and the the world just about fell on me because Calgary was a highly unionised town and they said you can't even suggest that people can be successful unless they're a member of a union or you have some union muscle. And they said, no, the world doesn't work like that. It's mm. if, if you excel, people will respect you and you'll, you will, through merit, you will, you will be successful. They said, oh, no, that's no good. It's not, not, not possible. So I wrote a letter to the... People that produced the magazine, I said, hey, your ideas are getting me into a bit of trouble. So the president of the foundation wrote back to me, he called me Mr. Manners. <laughs> very professional, very nice. <laughs> and he said, no, our ideas are okay. Probably started with Aristotle, they've been polished up by a lot of people over the years. He said, if you're getting into trouble, it's because you haven't got sufficient knowledge to defend your beliefs. So with that in mind, he said, I'll put you on a mailing list. You subscribe to the magazines. Here they are. Mm. Here's a few books to start with. And if you ever got any questions, write to me. Well, I did start writing to him. And he became my mentor up until the time of his death in 1983. Amazing sequence. Letter writing was a good habit to get into. And I, I jumped on a plane once. I pulled a little book I wanted. It was a two-hour flight, so I needed a little book I could write, read in th two hours. So I picked a book by F.A. Hayek, the economist, called uh, uh, The Choice of Currency, in which he proposed that if your government is destroying, destroying your currency, as ours is today, mm. uh, you should be free to select another currency in which to deal and use your transactions in any currency you choose. The best currency must win. And uh, that was pretty revolutionary, revolutionary then because it was illegal for Australians really to own other currency. It was illegal back in those days for Australians to own gold. Yeah. Hard to believe. But this was the, the law. And uh, anyway, I thought, this is fascinating. So I wrote to him. And he wrote back on his manual typewriter. And uh, we, again, became very good friends. And uh, then I was... 1976, I was one of the people we brought. F.A. Hayek had been awarded the Nobel Prize in economics in 1975, I think. So we brought him out to Australia on his tour, and I became a great friend. He invited me in to become a member of the Mont Pelerin Society, which he'd started with Milton Friedman and others in 1947. And it's a prestigious group of 500 or so economists all around the world, and they're one thing leads to another. Now I'm a director of it. Mm. Well, and, and now, and now you're one of the faces you're flying all over the world for, and and, yeah. and speaking all of this. Yeah, and then uh, then you find. Uh, well, you're right. We were talking earlier about the free market roadshow. I often think of it. It's like the eighth wonder of the world in the sense that it's run by the Austrian Centre for Economics, and they've compiled. They've invited a hundred 
or so people like me from different walks of life, I'll do a speaker's panel. And uh, in uh, each year, the numbers vary a bit, but I think in 44 days, around this time of the year, they visit 38 cities in Europe with a carefully curated little group of four or five speakers. You go from one to another, and when you go to the other city the next day, the other four people are different to mm. the ones you were with because in their wisdom they know that you've got specific interests that will interest that city or the issues that are confronting that country at that time, and you're expected to contribute to the debate and run a very lively session which is open to the public and they have their politicians and economic advisors there and they really hit you with some pretty pretty tough questions. Yeah, tough questions, <laughs> a, a tough Q, a question and, and answer and, session. And that's, I've been doing that for a few, every year except for the COVID uh, period and um, I, I only visited three cities this year, Bratislava, Warsaw. The Warsaw was really a, a, a Ukrainian uh, uh, focused group because they brought people from Ukraine there to yeah. Ukraine to to Warsaw because they were un, uneasy about taking our group into Kiev and just as Naturally, well because it was yeah. a day of intense bombing and then uh, we went from there to Tallinn in Estonia which is a, another remarkable each of those countries are fascinating they're also, well, we were, we were saying, also, from, so from my experience in, in Europe, opposed to sitting in Australia, you drive three hours, you're in a completely different yeah. culture, environment. And, and as you were saying, you, you went to three of these cities, you had three different presentations because each of the cities, each of the, the areas have different priorities of what they're struggling with. So, I mean, within those speeches, and, and I, I read all three, it was the leadership, the entrepreneurship, and then there was the talk about energy, at least that was my understanding. I mean, what were those those environments like and, and what did you learn in particular speaking at those conferences and, and finding out what they're struggling compared to what Australia is going through? Well, we, that's, a, that's a thoughtful question because it, uh, it makes me think with energy, for instance, I, why was I talking about energy? Uh, because they'd seen on my CV that it in the mid 1950s, I qualified as a, an electrical engineer. Oh, yes, and that, and that was the, the credentials <laughs> to, to be on the stage far <laughs> out. Okay. I was the energy expert. But their impression was that Australia has got the energy situation pretty much under control. Yeah. Uh, and I said to them, I said, well, it's very hard to, to explain our energy policy in Australia because without making it look like a comedy show, you know, it's. Mm. it's uh, they, you, you know, they, they're right in, in Europe and they, they're aware that Russia is blowing up the power stations in Ukraine, for instance, but here we are in Australia, we're blowing up our own power stations and putting it on TV to convince people that that's blown up forever and will never be reopened. Yeah. And we're doing this without any concept of having alternative energies ready in time yeah. for this. And, and they're not ready in time. They're way behind. Mm. And suddenly we're, we're discovering that these replacement energy supplies are intermittent. Yeah. And nobody's factored in, for instance, with solar, that within, we've got a dusty country. Within a few days, 
we've got those solar panels covered with dust, which reduces their output by 15%. And that's pretty much permanent until it rains. So everyone's been stalling along this populist way of rushing towards something that's not ready for us yet. I love electric cars, I love all this stuff, but in their own time. Yeah. I mean, you and I will probably end up with an electric car, but at a different time because you might do short trips, I might do long trips, you might have a garage where you can plug it in, I might have to park in the street and run an extension cord to have people trip out of it. A safety hazard. (laughs) Or some of my friends are in apartments and they body corporate won't provide them with a power supply in the car park. Yeah. Yeah. So, So... Maybe those people shouldn't buy an electric car yet. Yeah. But the the fact for a government to come and and pass an edict by a certain day on a certain year, thou shall not have the ability to buy a diesel engine Mm. or whatever, is crap. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I've I've spoken about because the the whole idea that, you know, we've got this this speech that it, we're going towards, you know, electric electrification of everything. And the idea that the energy consumption that everyone uses isn't accelerating and that we're not keeping up with it is, is a fact, but it's not really thrown in the conversation. When you look at the trusted power sources uh, like coal and like gas, uh, these, are, these are sources that we need because realistically energy is what unlocks education. And we know there's a, a massive concern in a, a lot of countries and a lot of institutions that the education quality isn't necessarily improving uh if anything it's sort of being whitewashed by certain discussions and, and talking points and that's why it's so important to have these free think tanks naturally mm. but the idea that that energy can just be you switched on and off and that yeah solar and, and wind and i mean the discussion that we're not talking about in australia is nuclear and there's a lot more talk about uh, that in, in Europe, in France, and, yeah. and just saying that the energy mix is not just one or two components. It's got to be a whole host because we are consuming more and more. The people that are talking about it, what they call it carbon-free, they get confused between carbon and CO2. That's a different subject altogether. But uh, they, uh, they, they've got to face up to the fact that, and they, most of those same people are against nuclear, but there's no way they're ever going to achieve what they're trying to achieve without factoring in nuclear exactly. part of this formula. Yeah. So yeah. They've, got to, they've got to change their whole mindset. To be, uh, to back to your question, what else did I learn in moving on from, uh, from that was Bratislava, mm. then going to Warsaw was a really a Ukrainian event where they brought the Ukrainians there and... Uh, and, and we did, we did. Australia has got a lot to contribute to. The Ukrainian government has got a, um, a whole department formed to establish new economic reforms for after the war. So yeah. even though the bombs are dropping, their focus is on how are they going to reform their economy and re-emerge as a real powerhouse. And uh, that's good that they're thinking about this because when they did their economic reforms, when they broke away from the Soviet Union in 1991, this applies to most of those Europeans, former Soviet countries. They had to move very quickly into economic reforms and they didn't get their privatisations right. And they know that. And they say, now we've got another chance to get it right 
they, here's an example. They, when they break away from the Soviet Union, they said, we've got to privatise. So if you were in a third or fourth level apartment, that, that cubic space of your apartment became yours. Yeah. That was their ideas of property rights, but they had no concept of the underlying land that that should be part of your ownership too. Yeah. So there's no strata title, there's no way of sharing the land. So these former Soviet built, very badly built in many But the ugly looking uh, yeah. grey buildings, yes. Terrible. Yeah. They should be, they're ready for demo demolition, but you can't, nobody will allow them to be demolished because their property rights would go poof. Yeah. They'd lose their property rights. So this is, this is a real interesting thing. So we've, We've, by zooming in some of the senior members of parliament to our office here in, in Perth, here in Subiaco, they, they've, uh, we've provided them with, with uh, full copies of our Western Australian Strata Title Act, which is one of the best. It wasn't so good when they first brought it in, but mm. it's going to be polished up. It's absolutely world class. Yeah. We've provided them with a full copy of our Miners and Mining Act, which again, when it was created in. A lot of backlash, naturally. wasn't most popular. Capable of dealing with all the new emerging things, yeah. but the current mining act is a first class, and it's been copied by about five countries out of Africa. Just with it, our mining act is very, very good. Mm. So they're, they're they're working on that now to get their property rights correct, not only in domestic, industrial, and mining property. They'll be really good. So that was a very interesting discussion in Warsaw slash Kiev. Then we went up to Estonia, Tallinn as the capital city there. That was totally, totally different. Uh, the focus there was on entrepreneurship. Yeah. And they probably, that's a small country. Total population, 1.3 million people, less than the population Perth, of Perth. Yeah. But the, their psyche, their, their style of generating new companies and startups is something to behold. Skype came out of, uh, out of uh, Estonia, that's subsequently been taken over by Microsoft, yes. just to get, to get the tech, technology, technology out of it yeah. and to steal the people. They're still, they're still there. Uh, it was amazing. You know, six months ago when I was in Tallinn last, this, I'll mention this because it's relevant. I had a very interesting discussion with, uh, he is an academic, but he he'd got, he'd obtained, obtained from me a year before a book that I wrote called The Lonely Libertarian. And he'd read that and he, he said to me, he said, I agree with a lot of you saying, what you're saying, but he said, there's some points in there that I'm, um, there's a, some points of disagreement. He said, I, from reading your experiences, you obviously don't have much trust in government. And I thought about that. Of course I don't, because <laughs> I've got so much evidence of, yeah, of, 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 I, of that. I, I really have been let down by government so often that I, I don't have much trust. And that made me realise that in Estonia they had tremendous trust in the government. Yeah. And I, I thought, how fortunate you are. And we, we discussed this quite a different attitude to our government and, and how, how it's easy 
life's easy if you can trust your government. Mm. Life's easy if you can trust your business partner. Yeah. Life's easy if you can trust your husband or your wife or your family. This yeah. Is, yeah, it's completely... thing yeah. is built on trust. And then when I got back this year, this discussion six months after, the first comment was, now we know what you're talking about, mm. this distrust. And I said, what's changed? And they said, we had elections about three weeks ago. We've got the same prime minister, but that prime minister has had to do all sorts of funny little deals with extreme to get into certain parties to get anything through. Yeah. So they've lost that core function of understanding the limited role of government. What's the legitimate things the government should be doing or not doing? I say that because yesterday I read that our, our state government has invested $4 million or something in an airline. Interesting. And the airline here, it, it, it's called Nexus. A new airline has just been launched. Well, it's not the role of government to no. be investing in airlines. No. It. What? No, so, no, 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 no. So right here. So again, I distrust any government that has to invest in an airline when the things it should be doing, not doing very well. So let's get back to the task that we should be giving them. So, And he said, so things have changed and suddenly... They're coming up with all sorts of little funny things looking for additional taxes. He said the tax structure in Estonia has been rigid. Flat rate tax, 20% since about 1991. Nothing changes. So if you're in business with confidence, you can do your sums, you can launch something into something and it works. Yeah. But he said now we've got... This is going to be tampered with every year, like your Australian superannuation fund. Like every well, year, can't this stand complete it now. changes. So the, we started having extreme trust in the superannuation side of that. We would be able to look after ourselves and not be reliant on government. But that's not working out very well. No, <laughs> so, no, no, no. So that was that was what I learned out of the discussion in uh, in Estonia, but they. They've got another um, uh, another thing. They've got there's almost a hundred thousand people with e-residency of Estonia around the world. I'm one of them. Hmm. I got e-residency for Estonia. It doesn't mean you have, you have to live there or that you have to visit there, but you can you can register yourself there. You can have a company there. Cost you about three hundred euros a year to maintain a comp a company an e company in Estonia. In Australia, even if you don't do anything, you get to pay five thousand dollars for an account to to lodge the necessary forms. So it's just a and we the the person in charge of the e residency is is coming at our invitation is coming to Perth. And uh, she'll be giving a little talk in our office on the 26th of September, explaining the advantage of e-residency and run by people like the digital nomads. But if you're running a company or a startup, mm. you don't have to be where the company is. No. You can choose then to live in the best country in the world. You can then work in the best country in the world, which is probably going to be a difference. And then you can invest. The third leg yeah. is reinvesting. You can invest... You're not again, constrained. In the best country in the world, yeah. which again will be, you will end up dealing with three different countries because never, unless for momentary flash of time, will the best country to live be the best country in which to work and the best country in yeah. which to invest. 
if it's if it's true this second, it's probably not going to be true. No, tomorrow. it's going to evolve and change. So you can choose to live there, work there, have your company registered somewhere else. So there's a hundred thousand people running in the world around the world doing exactly that from all all parts of the world with an Estonian company running something somewhere else. And isn't that amazing? That's the discipline of the market that brings out the very best because you can choose the very best for you. Well, and this is the whole concept that, I mean, even for you starting your entire career is this stuff would have always been a, a fantasy seeing that you yeah. could be doing this in the future and even the adoption and acceleration in technologies. I mean, you know, COVID for all it's bad for all the lockdowns, it did show to people that, you know, you can work remotely, you can do things all across the world and almost be as effective, if not more efficient in, in that situation. And of course, there was a lot of negatives, a lot of learnings out of it, but the way that people always innovate and, and look for, for opportunities is, is so apparent. And I mean, that floods me back to see the idea of, of what, what drives you. And I've seen you ask this question in, in um, well, you've been asked this question a few times, like what happened to your life that made all the difference and, and gave you this motivation and this drive? And I mean, what makes you every single day want to keep instilling this sort of education and, and, and knowledge across to people? I, again, I'm so, I'm so busy I'll never think about that, but I yeah. think it's some insatiable curiosity. But I think, I think it's also more than that. It's by being able to compare all these jurisdictions around the world, all these different situations, makes me realise how lucky we are, how yeah. lucky you are and how lucky I am to be living at a time like this when the choices are all ours. Yeah. We're not confined to... But some people are living in countries where they cannot possibly... Consider that or have seen it as a reality. They, they, yeah. they wouldn't even dream of suggesting. If you were in Russia, you, you wouldn't suggest that there's a, a better place to work. Mm. They'd lock you up tomorrow. Same in Hong Kong. If you There's no free newspapers in Hong Kong. There's no expression here. We can say what we like about the president, the premier, the mm. state government, anyone, and, and we can get away with it as long as it's, as it's true. Yeah. It must be true. If it's, if it's false, then you can be sued. So, yes. And, and I, so how lucky are we? Well, not a great. And, <laughs> and the ability to express yourself and, and you know, naturally, that's, that's how you learn by expressing ideas and, and the idea of that you speak with other people that know things and that's how you educate and you learn and, and you shape yourself. You shouldn't be sort of necessarily attacked and, and ridiculed and bullied for, for expressing a certain idea. You can be re-educated and, and aligned, but also that, that's how you that's how you get better. That's how you grow, which I think is, especially, you know, man cow in particular, that's one of the, the tools that clearly you've instilled in, in the, the program is is challenging young and up-and-coming students and, and learners and people wanting to go into the global markets is to do that exact thing. Yeah, so... I think uh, somebody, a lot of people have asked me that, and I, I, I think this is why we started Mankel because people have said, what, what motivates you? And I, I look back and I said, well, it's only about, you learn from thousands of people as you pass through your life, but there's only four or five people that really stand out really and impact you, change your direction, and uh, you know, they insinuate themselves into your brain, and they never go away. So I've picked them. Four or five models of people. You're Mount Rushmore. <laughs> yeah, and, and they're the people that I've modelled. Those, and, and and it's only the things that have been a benefit that have 
that I really look back with extreme gratitude were all happened to me by accident and they were all short-term things. They weren't a matter of having gone to this school, having been a member of this club or playing golf or play, none of those things at all. They were just short, sharp experiences. So I thought, well, if we're going to replicate that and try to create those opportunities for young people uh, because I think there's a lot of stuff that they're not learning at universities. Yeah. We pick up, we pick up, we try to provide them with things that they're not being, not, it's not covered in the universities. Anyway, that's a, another story altogether. Sure yeah. Sure but, is, but exposing but them to that. The, the short, sharp thing is what we do. And uh, in these, we limit our, our things to, quick events at the office when they're exposed to all these visiting speakers we have, uh, quick, uh, short uh, uh, visits to like the Sam Griffith Society meeting, which is next uh, August in Melbourne, the uh, uh, Friedman Conference in Sydney, around about the same time, and these are short, sharp things. And by the end of the year, if they, if they've, uh, if we can see they're absorbing this stuff, we send them on the a two or three month internship at some leading leading think tanks around the world where they they sit with people, the tutors who show them how to write research papers and how to structure them correctly and how to produce uh, articles and documents and and uh, these are really world class people that think like I do in the sense that they see these people terrific skills, but they're not getting, in their own environment, they're not getting these very special skills. Yeah, these moments that shape and... Yeah, and, yeah. and, uh, and, uh, and what, I've, what I find a surprising side effect is that so many of these people we send out to these longer-term uh, think tanks, they end up getting employed by them full-time. We've got them all... <laughs> All over the world. Perfect stepping stone <laughs> for the job career, we, in a way. We, we may never see them again, but they keep in touch with us and, and keep reminding us that we help them with the instill that little element of curiosity, which has got them to where they are. But uh, and uh, one of our former students, who we scholars, who we'd sent to uh, uh, Lithuania, actually, he and his uh, his wife and family took me out to lunch in Canberra on s Sunday after my uh, short, quick trip there, yeah. To, to tell me about his career path following his trip. He was so impressed with Lithuania <laughs> that he went back. He went back, he uh, really did uh, enjoy uh, that time. Under his own steam, you know, and uh, he's still in touch with them there. So, that's, so I can, that's, that's what it is. If you can look back, uh, I, I'm probably looking at life to the different end of the tunnel to you. Mm. <laughs> You're looking, yeah. looking at the tunnel looking forward. I tend to uh, look, look backward and say, what you know, What really made all the difference? Uh, uh, some of my friends are brain dead. Mm. Uh, and and, and, and I, I worry about them, but they, they, they weren't stretched. They weren't sort of thing. And it's a terrible thing to say, but uh, you know, I look back and say, well, how come I'm still really enjoying it and... and Looking forward to the next, to the next day, the and the next, next challenge, and the next yeah. To be presented to me. <laughs> so I think I think that's about it. And if we can, we create, and we've got a wonderful team 
of people here at Mankell who, who, who really are very good at creating the right opportunities for these people to go to. Some people are more economically inclined, some people are more philosophically inclined, some people are interested in politics, which is which I have no interest whatsoever <laughs> in politics, but, but some people are because they, there's four ways to change the world and politics is, is one, one of them, yeah. And the other two is education, that's probably more out of style. The other third is, uh, is uh, passive resistance, which is very effective. Uh, it's been very effective over the years. And the fourth way is war. Mm. Straight out yeah. violence, which is, I don't think, Believe in. a very good op no. option to even consider, but it's on the list of four ways. So we've chosen education. Some people choose politics. Well, we'll, we'll back them. Mm. We'll create political opportunities for them to absorb how they can be effective in their chosen role. Mm. Somebody's, somebody's, got Some, to somebody's got to do it. No, I, I think that's the speaking with a lot of the, the scholars at certain events. You can see that being instilled in them and the drive to, to, to do all that. And it's, it's again a credit to, to your vision and how you've been molded and, and your experiences and, and clearly the team that you've built here. But I mean, this has been a very insightful conversation. It's really just the tip of the iceberg yeah, as to, and, to, to yourself. And we, we encourage all our scholars to to really argue with us. We don't want full agreement. There's no fun in that. We want them to develop their own philosophies mm. in life with which they're comfortable and which they can take forward and, uh, and develop into successful philosophies and a style where they can run a, run a family, run a business or run a country. Yeah. These consistent things. Uh, I think the our form of economics, which is called Austrian economics, is one of self-responsibility, and it's a very valid alternative to the Keynesian e economics that seems to be the only diet in economics that's that been people are at the going for. Now. Yeah, that's uh, that's I think it's been proven not to work. Again, it's when you get yourself into debt, you find the solution is to go and borrow more money. That's that is not the answer. That's what's got us mm. into trouble. And I think the present generation of political leaders should be put over a barrel and whacked because they've left such a mess yeah. to the next generation. My parents didn't leave a mess like that. They might not have left much money. Nobody had any money mm. in those days, but they sure didn't. I didn't inherit debt. Yeah. Well, and then that, I mean, the optimism in me is that I'm sure the creativity of people that are young will find ways around it. I, I think there's so many emerging industries that are clearly trying to disrupt current yeah. channels and the, and the way business has been done. And you can, or not even just business, but the way the world has been been run. And I mean, yeah, the optimist in me is that there will be opportunities. It's just about, you know, if you're, you're young and enthusiastic and you just seize that and, and yeah, really just take an opportunity. But yeah, I, I really thank you for, for taking the time to speak with me on the show today. Okay. <laughs> Good on you. Thanks for listening to the Market Bull Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please make sure to like and subscribe. You can follow the Market Bull on our socials at Twitter and LinkedIn by searching the Market Bull. You can also subscribe to our newsletter on the website by visiting www.themarketbull.com.au.